Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there. Welcome to Stock Club, the weekly podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode is Emmett Savage, Chief Investor here at My Wall Street, and Rory Caron, our Head Analyst. Today, we're talking about the latest in Apple's battle over its App Store policies, recent merger and acquisition news, including Intuit's purchase of MailChimp, and Emmett and Rory pitch me their wildcard stock ahead of Emmett's free webinar next week. So guys, great episode with Jason Moser last week. Really, really interesting to listen to. But Rory, I thought you were getting a little bit too comfortable with the hosting role. Yeah, I thought it was great. It's funny. It's a totally different thing. I was kind of, I was preparing for it thinking, God, I have no prep to do it all. This is great being the host. You just, you just ask questions. And then I realized you have to do loads of prep to be the host. Yeah, that's it. This is what I do every day, all week. <laughs> well, I don't know if you do it, but I felt I had to in order well, to keep up the standards. <laughs> <laughs> we, we won't go too deep in that. I'll just say I won't dust off my P45 yet, Rory. <laughs> So let's get into some of the stories we're going to cover this week. And the first one is a story that we've covered multiple times in this podcast. I'm talking, of course, about Apple's various run-ins over its App Store policies. The latest in this long-running saga came last week when a judge in California ruled that Apple was not unfairly monopolizing the mobile app market through its App Store purchasing system. But developers like Epic Games, the makers of the massively popular Fortnite game, should be allowed to tell their users about different ways to pay for subscriptions outside of the App Store system. On the surface, I thought this kind of looked like a bit of a win for Epic, but Epic have actually already appealed the decision because they've been ordered to pay for damages, number one. But number two, they still believe that Apple acts like Monopoly, which the ruling obviously thinks differently. Rory, this has been going on for so long and it feels like every new development makes things more complicated. What's going on? What's your take on this latest ruling? Well, so as you, as you just pointed out, it was a quite a complex case and the ruling delivered by the judge last week did cause even more confusion. I know when I first saw the tweets land in my timeline, just like you, James, I thought at first glance Epic had actually won the case. Yeah. Um, but I think as the dust settled and people actually read the ruling, it became obvious that this was actually a huge win for Apple. A little bit of background, last year Epic Games, the maker of the massively successful Fortnite, updated its app on both iOS and Android to include their own payment systems. And at the exact same time, they reduced the cost of their in-game currency exactly 30%, which as we know, is Apple and Google's standard commission on any revenue generated through the respective app stores. Now, this was direct flouting of Apple and Google's rules, Both and both companies basically removed Fortnite from their app stores. Um, At this stage, Epic started a campaign called Free Fortnite and launched a legal battle against both Apple and Google alleging antitrust. Now, like, I'm not a lawyer, so... um, (laughs) We we know that. If any lawyers out there want to school me on what actually happened, feel free, but I'm going to give it my best shot here from all the stuff I've read uh, over the last kind of couple of days. The case kind of came down to three points here, right? The first was Epic claimed that Apple is a monopoly that it controls because it controls basically every aspect of the app store. Okay. Yeah. And that's what they were kind of arguing. Apple said that this wasn't about the app store at all. Actually, it was about gaming in general. And in that market, 
Apple is far from monopoly when you think about all the different ways that people consume games. Yeah. The second point was Epic were arguing about Apple's what's called their anti-steering provision, which basically prevents developers from linking to payment options outside of Apple. And they say that's anti-competitive. And the third point was that Epic alleged that Apple was behaving like an illegal monopolist. Now, on the first point, the judge found that she didn't actually agree with either Epic or Apple in terms of what market was at stake. And she noted that it's the digital gaming transaction market that is important here, which basically means all the money that's spent on buying games and all the money that's spent within those games. Yeah. Now, she did rule that Apple's anti-steering provisions were anti-competitive. So Apple can no longer do that. But of course, as we've discussed before, Apple was already heading in that own directions on their own. So Apple has 90 days to appeal that, but if not appealed, we will start seeing some changes to the iOS systems in the next kind of 90 days. On the final question of, is Apple an illegal monopolist? Well, the easy answer there was no, because again, now the judge says we're not talking about apps in general. She says we're talking about gaming. And in gaming, there are loads of competitors out there. Yeah. So that's kind of the breakdown of what the ruling said. And essentially, it was a big win for Apple because Apple didn't want to be thought of as a monopoly, essentially. So the fact that it was defined as a gaming issue, not a whole app issue, means that Apple kind of essentially won the case here and Epic are going to appeal that. So Apple managed to avoid that that monopoly branding, which I suppose is crucial to their argument. But it seems like they kind of expected a lot of this. We spoke on this podcast a few weeks ago about Apple's announcement that they would allow developers to contact users about alternative payment methods outside the app ecosystem. Do you think this was Apple preempting the decision in this in this court battle? Yes, yeah, certainly. Certainly Apple have taken steps over the last couple of months to try and put themselves in kind of better stead with public perception. Uh, of course, they cut the fees on the first million from 30 to 15%. That was kind of seen as an olive branch. Google yeah. quickly followed suit afterwards. And yet they've they've kind of done a kind of a little bit of kind of engineering where they're like, oh, this was already kind of allowed, you know, uh, before the judge even said they have to do it. It's, like, it's kind of already allowed. And yeah, we'll just kind of clarify that now that, that this was yeah. always allowed. There's no reason to kind of actually change anything. But, you know, they will, I think, take steps to protect themselves in the best way they can. You know, we talk about this anti-steering provision and letting developers at least tell people, first of all, that you can pay in a different way, which was kind of a big a big point of contention. But also, how are they going to let developers now link to other places? My guess is they're going to make it pretty tricky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not going to be... Well, first of all, you have to remember that most developers probably don't have the resources it's going to take to build their own payment system, right? And none of them have the resources to build one that's going to be comparable to Apple's. So it may be, you know, the in-app payment system will always be there. And then they might be able to say, oh, look, there's another way to pay, right? But that could mean clicking on a Safari link that brings you to a website that makes you fill out all your credit card information. Um, you know, things that aren't going to be particularly appealing to users. And so, that, I mean, they're going to have to discount, the, the discount is going to have to be quite big. You know, the 30% that Apple takes, they're going to have to pass that on to the consumer in order to even get them to look at this alternative payment method. And in my experience, consumers typically take the road of least resistance when it comes to these things. So, you know, if you're getting a 30% discount, fine. If it's a small purchase, which a lot of these are, are you just going to, go through Apple's system, knowing that all your credit card information is there, knowing how secure it is. I feel like that's kind of what's going to end up happening here. Yeah, absolutely. So no no real worries about threats to Apple's revenue, really. Let's get back to that question of, of monopoly. And something I want to ask both of you, 
obviously, you know, the interpretation of, of what this court case is about, whether it's about the App Store in general or about gaming or about in-game pay- payments. What do you guys think? Do you think Apple acts like Monopoly? Rory, I'll come to you first on this. What I think is that I look back 10, 15 years ago, let's say, even longer than that, 20 years ago, when the internet was, when I was first starting to use the internet. And there was lots of applications out there that you could download. And there was ways that you could buy things on the internet. And I remember asking uh, my mother if I could borrow a credit card to buy something on the internet about 20 years ago. And she it looked like she looked at me as if I just slapped her on the face. She was like, <laughs> you want me to put my credit card on the internet? Like, yeah. <laughs> and all these applications that were out there you know, you were like, you were taking your life in your hands downloading them. There was viruses and malware and all this stuff on. I think what Apple did when they created the App Store was they created an entire ecosystem where people felt comfortable buying stuff from developers. And, you know, you think about the change from that, from pre-App Store days, it's black and white. There's, you know, I don't think there would be this amazing economy without what Apple created. And in that sense, I do think that they deserve, you know, to be able to make money out of it. But what I think is happening at the moment is, if I was to use the analogy of the pharmaceutical business, right, you know, when you create a new drug, you typically get about kind of 20 years where you have full ownership of that drug and no one else is allowed to copy it. After 20 years, you have what's called the patent cliff. And this is when your patent expires and generic drug makers basically flood the market with cheaper alternatives. I think what's kind of happening here at the moment, and and it's happening with kind of Google as well and kind of South Korea, is that there's definitely a feeling out there in the world that Apple and Google have had their 20 years at this point. Okay. And that, and, or at least they're kind of approaching it. And this Epic case was one of those kind of first real tests of that. And I don't think Epic actually expected to win this case. I really think this was Epic kind of poking the bear going, how far can we get in here? and, And what could we kind of disturb about Apple's, what they think is a monopoly. Um, and it could lead to a lot of other things further down the line. I think, And I think even the judge kind of expressed that. She said that she wasn't saying Apple wasn't a monopoly, but she was saying that Epic had failed to prove it was a monopoly in this particular case. So perhaps another business or perhaps Epic themselves could come back again, kind of be a bit more refined in what they're looking at and start you know, changing or at least you know, hammering out a bit of Apple's kind of wall there. What's your feeling of this, Emmett? Yeah, well, I, the very, I, I love that analogy, Rory, about the drugs and the patents, the 20-year protection when you discover a molecule that's addressing a specific condition. And that is really what they did. They created a molecule that addresses a specific condition. Um, but like they currently have monopolistic profits. Their app store profits last year came in at something like, I don't have the numbers, like $75 billion in 2020. And that's like super normal profits. So they really are in a duopoly with Google, with monopolistic practices as we've all seen yeah absolutely and and we see it you mentioned there or google are in trouble over in south korea they were fined i think 170 million dollars for prohibiting other companies from building alternatives to android os so i think we can definitely i i concur i think we can definitely see a crackdown on these kind of so-called wall gardens of os systems um let's move on then and 
this year, 2021, has already been a bumper year for mergers and acquisitions. So, so far this year already, there's been $3.6 trillion spent on M&A, setting us on a path to beat 2015 as a record-breaking year of deal-making. To get into specifics, we've seen some pretty big acquisitions, even in just the past few days. So Intuit, a company best knowing for selling tax software, splashed out $12 billion to buy the email marketing platform MailChimp earlier this week. Microsoft has also let loose with its wallet, snapping up both the video editing app ClipChamp and the online education company Take Lesson in just the past week. This means that Microsoft has acquired 10 companies this year so far by my count, which is a pretty impressive tally. Um, and I'm going to come to you on this first. And thinking about the year as a whole and why there's been so many of these this deal making in 2021, wh- what do you think is the cause for it? Why are we seeing such a, uh, a flurry of companies being snapped up by larger competitors at the moment? I suspect that giant businesses are recognizing that SPACs are a new competitor and that they need to accelerate their M&A activities before viable growing businesses are snapped up and sent out the listing door, as it were. And I think it's useful to remind ourselves of the reasons that a company makes an acquisition in the first place, because there are loads of reasons. Yeah. Um, and they're not all mutually exclusive. Well, first up, a buyer is generally taking out a competitor and at a first glance, the benefits of that are clear because you're no longer chasing the same or similar customers. Mm. After an acquisition, you should have greater market share and often instant diversification into adjacent products or markets, ideally with products that add value to your product set and for which you can power charge the sales method. Like for example, Atlassian, a favorite of mine, they acquired Trello back when from a private company, which I think was called Frog Creek Software. And that was genius from a complementary product acquisition perspective. It gave the entire tool set for companies who are operating on a digital basis. So so there's also an opportunity to take out costs um, of either or both businesses, um, which for good or bad, very often comes in the form of human capital, laying people off. But despite all of these benefits, when you look at mergers, and acquisitions in the MBA textbooks, they are notoriously difficult because cultures get crushed by the mechanism. And the acquired companies very often find that, you know, they are the acquiring company very often finds that the value they identified didn't actually materialize or it wasn't even sustainable. But in short, there is a SPAC and MA gold rush of sorts, and I suspect they're fueling each other. Yeah, I just want to get back to that initial SPAC point you make. Do you, do you think these companies, do you think SPACs are making it easier for smaller companies to go to market and that the larger companies are trying to snap them up before this happens? Oh, they are certainly. I mean, like if you take it, there's no doubt that Microsoft has a watch list yeah. of dozens or hun- hundreds of companies that would fit into their product portfolio. And equally with that intelligence, they're aware in this kind of uh, SPAC brigade are out trying to take those businesses down a different route. I personally have high conviction that they are this, there is a rush of SPACs that is fueling M&A. And I think M&A is kind of expediting certain SPACs. So I think there's a kind of a, a circular reference going on in the marketplace. Yeah, that's very interesting. I hadn't heard, thought of that aspect before. So let's talk about some of those companies in question then. We'll go to Intuit MailChimp first. Um, so mm-hmm. we actually use MailChimp here at my Wall Street. And I can't say that I can immediately see the synergies between a tax software company and an email platform. What am I missing, Emmett? 
Yeah, I, I do agree with you. And Intuit are very well versed in acquisition. So you see, there are a lot of businesses that we discuss about the risks of acquisition, but there are big businesses that have nailed the process. One from our, our app is Hain Celestial, which pretty much scaled through acquisition. At, yeah. I don't know, Rory, if you'd have the number, but they, they just acquired, I think, hundreds of companies. And so there's businesses that just grow through acquisition. Intuit did both. They fuel their growth through acquiring businesses and, of course, through organic growth. And uh, by my count, they've acquired about 60 companies, of which about 10 in the last five years. And uh, just earlier this year, they acquired Rocket Science Group for 12 billion, which is more or less what they paid for MailChimp, 12 billion with cash and stock. The fit for me just doesn't make sense. When I read the press release, it says Intuit thinks that the deal advances its powering prosperity around the world and its strategy to become an AI driven expert platform, which just doesn't read, read right to me. I don't really know what they're saying. So I did you kind of, after that sentence, you're kind of like, what did I just what? read? What did I just... <laughs> yeah. It seems so that see... every company kind of slaps the AI tag on, on yeah. their branding as well. It's like, yeah, we, we've AI here somewhere. Sure. Well, when you think about the principles of AI and neural networks, you know, there's an information loop that refines and ultimately the algorithm gets smarter. I don't know what, in fact, what data they're feeding into this loop. But clearly, you don't drop 12 billion on a business without having very clear intent. And I suspect that we're missing. There's a lot of data in email campaigns. And as you said, we use MailChimp, thousands, hundreds of thousands of other businesses use it too. And I think Intuit see a very clear value point that isn't very, that isn't identifiable to me anyway yeah and you mentioned that part of this deal it's it's a cash and stock deal the mm. fact that you know the likes of Intuit their share price has been on such a run over the past couple of years and uh, driven by the pandemic and, and things like that do you think that increases the velocity of these mergers and acquisitions too that they've, they've got a bit more more capital to play with yeah, I mean, generally the businesses will try and preserve cash unless they're sitting on an absolute mountain of it. And when the acquired company is is being acquired with stock, obviously it's in everyone's interest, both parties' interest to make sure that the whole thing succeeds. And I think that they, of course, have a kind of stronger checkbook with their equity when they can show that there's past price appreciation because Intuit yeah. has been an absolutely wonderful investment and it is growing extremely uh, quickly despite its scale and size. Uh, so I would imagine, despite the fact that here on this podcast, I cannot tell you why, why MailChimp was a good acquisition. <laughs> I, I, bet it, I bet it was. <laughs> Let's move on to Microsoft then. And this acquisition of Take Lesson in particular, I think that's very significant Mm. because the company actually said back in January that it had over 100 million students using its team product for for teaching, obviously online remote teaching during the pandemic. Do you think Microsoft are going to make a big play into the online education with an acquisition like Take Lesson? I do. Uh, Take Lesson, I think, is a wonderful acquisition. It is the teledoc of learning. You go onto the website, you type in what it is you want to learn, and they'll match you with a tutor in various areas. And again, if you look at Microsoft's pedigree and their history of acquisition, it's absolutely colossal. Since summer 1987, uh, when they first made an acquisition of a company called Forethought for $14 million, they've successfully closed 260 acquisitions and taken stakes in dozens of other businesses. Yeah. Uh, the one that's most notable is they invested $150 million into Apple in August 1997. I mean, that 
alone. Um, not, not a bad return on that. I'd not say. a bad return. Absolutely right. So the fact that they've bought Take Lessons and also ClipChamp, clearly they're well-versed in, in successful acquisitions. I To your question, I do think that Microsoft is going to push further into the education space. And when you think about other products they have and their, I suppose, tier A suite of products like Teams, you would imagine Take Lessons could click in yeah. to um, the workplace with Teams and all of a sudden you've added a new layer of value. As Scott Galloway would say, rundling, one of the things, one of the, Scott Galloway has a, a T algorithm or a trillion dollar business algorithm and the, the attributes that a business needs in order to build and sustain a multi-trillion dollar business. And one of them is rundling. And the example that he uses when you go through that curriculum, as a lot of us did in my Wall Street, is uh, is just keeping keep adding new value. And Amazon Prime is the poster child example of that, where there's about you get about 10 things when you subscribe to Amazon Prime. So it's entwined in the way you work and think and you're, you're a kind of psyche on cancellation has been reduced because there's yeah. a, a different reason for everyone. I think that that is ultimately where Microsoft is going with a lot of these acquisitions. So, you know, team, for example, will just comp- just get more and more valuable if they start to offer things like take lessons where you can advance yourself in your lessons in your workplace during your lunch break. Absolutely. Rory, what about you? Any of those acquisitions standing out to you? I think the Intuit one's actually probably the most interesting because, yeah, it does. It's like, what are you doing with this email? First of all, do you know what's particularly interesting is the founders of MailChimp never took in any um, investment over the years. So they're basically wow. splitting that 12 billion between themselves, <laughs> <laughs> which I think wow. is like, well done, you guys. <laughs> yeah. um, always, That's all, a great story. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things like the lesson is, always um always launch your minimal viable products you never know yeah. what's gonna happen <laughs> um but i think yeah I, when i heard about it i went and i looked back and i uh, looked into into its kind of forward-thinking strategy and they are definitely attacking this idea of the small to medium business market mm. they've got a kind of five big bets that they've highlighted in their strategy I'll read them out here just for the sake of it. People can read further into them if they want to. It's revolutionize speed to benefit. Uh, Big bet two is connect people to experts. Big bet three was unlock smart money decisions. Big bet four was be the center of small business growth. And big bet five was disrupt the small business mid-market. And when I think about Intuit, I do think of this company that has been very much part of that market for an awful long time with their tax software. And if they have that relationship with them already, is this a kind of almost salesforce kind of play where they want yeah. to become, you know, the company that's connected with those small businesses and providing them with this kind of suite of products? And if email, you know, I, I do think email is still a fantastic driver of conversion. And this could be kind of where they're going with that. They want this to be kind of part of the kind of Intuit Salesforce-esque kind of customer 360 uh, vibe. I have no idea whether MailChimp is worth 12 billion, but look, we'll see how it works out. It's a lot for a few emails, but I'm sure they know more about it than me. Um, So let's talk about some of the things going on in my Wall Street at the moment. So Rory and I sat down earlier this week to record the latest Stock of the Month podcast. If you haven't been looking at our social channels, you'll see that I did a pretty good impression of Owen Wilson on that episode. So make sure to go and check it in the Wall Street app. We've also a brand new stock coming to my Wall Street shortlist this Monday. So don't forget to check that out as well and the last thing i want to mention is that next tuesday 
September 21st at 5 p.m. Dublin time, Emmett is holding his Wildcard and World Changes workshop. In this, Emmett is going to discuss the concept of wildcard stock and how they can make a massive short-term impact on your portfolio. And he's also going to tell us a few potential wildcard stocks that he's found. Emmett, given that you're you're hosting this Wildcard and World Changes workshop next week for this week's mailbag. I wanted you to tell us what is a wildcard exactly in your book when you're talking about these wildcard stock what, what would you constitute as a wildcard stock? There was a book written by a guy called John Peterson called Out of the Blue and Out of the Blue how to anticipate big future surprises and it, it, he kind of came up with the best definition that I've read for what is a wildcard he describes a wildcard as a low probability high impact event so when you bring in that thinking to your investment life and try and put parameters around, well, what is a what is a, a low probability, high impact event for your portfolio? What stocks might actually have a high positive impact? They will generally come at a higher level of risk than normal. They are businesses that are broadly misunderstood or have too many unknowns with them. They can be early stage companies that are ignored or they have headwinds and they've been abandoned. They're stocks that have been just maligned and destroyed. And turnarounds, as Peter Lynch defined, they may be wild cards, but it doesn't necessarily mean that a wild card is a turnaround. Yeah. Basically, a wild card is a stock that can gain a lot of ground in a short period of time. And they're very exciting to find and potentially very rewarding. And I recently reread Jason Zweig's book, Your Money and Your Brain, where he studies how our brains react to two forms of stimulus, which is simply gains and losses. It's a, it's a really good book, actually, for anyone, whether you're into investing at all, or not, it's one that I recommend our listeners should, should read. And he says, and I quote, the best investors make a habit of putting procedures in place in advance that help inhibit the hot reactions of the emotional brain. So when the market crashes, stocks become cheaper and they're a better deal for long for long term investors, but these feelings of panic make it really tough for yeah. investors to buy stock. Like, look, we all lived through the coronavirus crash. Mid March twenty twenty was the sharpest, fastest, most precipitous decline in stock prices ever seen, and everybody who's in our game looked at it and realized, "Wow, this is ridiculous!" Like Disney has halved in price. But there's this part of our brain which stands in the way and it's kind of this, uh, what is it, fight or flight reaction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, lizard so brain. Basically, lizard brain, exactly. So um, a wild card is a stock that I believe can make huge returns in a short period of time, but it comes with a higher level of risk. Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, the, the term wild card definitely screams risk. Um, how, yeah. how, might, how might something, and I don't want you to give away the, the whole the whole shebang, but how how you know with a wild card and investing wild cards how does that sit alongside you know a long-term buy and hold portfolio well it sits very well and one of the things that i learned by running horizon is that i passed on great opportunities because they fell outside the parameters that i'm applying for finding businesses with a potential to grow 10x and that disney example is one i looked at disney i can't quite remember what the stock price was i think it was like 80 bucks yeah and i was like that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Um, but did I buy? No, because I had a, I have a kind of um, a framework in which I'm operating Horizon. Yeah. Now, what I should have done is, is said, I'm buying Disney right now because ultimately this thing will yeah. pass. It's been cut in half. So really, I've punished myself 
while running Horizon by applying rules that sometimes have to be bent. And I think that that, that we're, with with wild cards, which I will be introducing. On, at the webinar next week and then introducing into the Horizon service, I think we have a potential for really fast returns. And in fact, two stocks I just bought two weeks ago were up 52% and I think 30% uh, respectively by applying the parameters that I'm going to be discussing. Okay, cool. So don't forget that workshop is next Tuesday, September 21st at 5pm Dublin time. That's GMT plus one. Uh, you can find the link to register in the notes for today's show or just go over to mywallstreet.com and you should find the link there. I suppose in the, in the spirit of wildcards for the elevator pitch today, I've asked both of you to pick me what a stock that you think is going to be a potential wildcard Rory, I'll let you go first. What's your wildcard stock? Or potential, potential, I should say, wildcard stock. Yeah, there's a company I've been looking at that is completely outside my circle of competence, but it's something I really want to learn about. It's something I really, I, it's, it's, a, it's a business I'm interested in. It's an industry I'm interested in. It's a small company called App Harvest, and they're the developers and operators of large-scale indoor farms. Um, and essentially what they do is they create these massive kind of farms inside essentially like massive greenhouses and they claim they can produce 30 times more produce than an open field farm by using 90 percent less water with zero agricultural runoff now their most recent report was a disaster they basically, <laughs> had to, basically had to drop all the guidance they previously had the stock got absolutely destroyed but i'm i'm interested in learning more about it and i think it could be a potential winner that's what you want to hear you want to hear a a, a bad recent story that that really tees it up nicely emmett what about you well, I'm going to save my best idea for the webinar, but I will tell you about one of the two wildcard trades I mentioned a few moments ago that I made on Horizon, or at least broadcast on the Horizon community before making the trade. And it's a company yeah. called Select Quote, which I bought on the last day of August, which is just 17 days ago as we record. And it's currently up 52% for me, actually a shave above it. And I think it's a wild, it was a perfect wildcard as it was dumped by the market. Uh, on the day I, yeah. I I bought, but the signals were there that this was an irrational oversell. Um, you know, when you look at the things that Peter Lynch would look like, price to earnings growth ratio of the company was 0.6, return on equity 21%, insider ownership 25%. But more interestingly, there was insider activity, which I will be elaborating on in, on the webinar next week. And I still think that Select Quote has some room to grow, even though it's it's recovered somewhat. I still think it's going to grow a little more. Wow. Okay. That was a good one. Uh, 50 plus percent return in this, in 17 days. It's pretty, pretty good going so far. So that's it for today's show, folks. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.